It was so difficult. When I, when I think about that time, I, I can't sleep. I thought that I was going to die. I, I wanted to die. I thought that I was going to go crazy in the forest. That's Salimata Bakoyoko. She's one of the thousands of people who have made the journey from Venezuela to the U.S.-Mexico border. The most treacherous part of that journey? The Darien Gap. It's a dense stretch of jungle that straddles the Panama-Colombia border. According to Human Rights Watch, 32,000 people, mostly Venezuelans, passed through the 66-mile gap in August. That's 40 times more than the same month last year. Most, including Salimata, are refugees fleeing a humanitarian crisis at home. She fled violence in Ivory Coast with her infant son and husband, and she described the experience to us through an interpreter. We spent seven days. There was rain. We didn't have anything to eat. There was so much rain and so much mud that we couldn't walk. It was very difficult to walk. We left our country with a lot of things and we lost them during this time in the forest. Two weeks ago, the Biden administration announced it would start sending some Venezuelan migrants back to Mexico. That's left tens of thousands stranded south of the border. It's not the end they were expecting to their cross-continental journey. So what happens now? What is it like to trek through the Darien Gap? And why are so many more migrants choosing to make the perilous week-long journey? We talk about all of that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. This message comes from NPR sponsor, SmartWool. Do you realize how many synthetic materials are in the clothes on your back and feet right now? That's why SmartWool is committed to sustainability, using natural, responsibly sourced merino wool in their gear and recycled materials in their packaging. Enjoy 15% off your first order of base layers, socks, and accessories at smartwool.com. Let's get right into our conversation on the Darien Gap by talking with someone who recently crossed it herself. Molly O'Toole is the immigration and security reporter for the Los Angeles Times. She's currently working on a book about asylum seekers' journey to the U.S. Molly is talking to us from San Diego, California. Hi, Molly. Welcome to 1A. Thanks for having me. So you crossed the Darien Gap earlier this year. What was it like? Yeah, it was it was actually just a few weeks ago. Uh, it's it's difficult to describe, and and obviously the um, the previous woman uh, did it in such a powerful way through the translator. But um, as you said, I mean it it's uh, it's the one of the rainiest spots on the planet. It's one of the most dan- uh, dense uh, tracts of land on the planet. You cross, um, you go up and down mountains. You're you're tr- you're sort of pulling your own legs through knee high. Mud. Uh, if I never see mud again in my life, uh, that would be fine with me. Uh, it, it's it's you're en- constantly wet. You're never dry. Uh, we tried to keep track of how many times you cross the river, um, and and we lost count. Uh, we had to wait several times because the rivers are so high. People are forming sort of human chains where they're holding each other's hand to try and get across the river, and uh, you know, lots of families are doing this. More families are making this crossing than ever before. So picture really small children, six-month-old babies, you know, tiny little rubber boots, um, and, and people trying to carry them across the rivers. Many people run out of food. They think it will take them either because smugglers have lied to them or uh, they want to, to believe the best. They think it'll take them much less time than it does, so they don't, often don't bring sufficient supplies. So you have people sort of increasingly desperate. Um, there is drug running, um, there's human trafficking, there's cartel activity, paramilitary activity, deadly snakes. I mean, you name it. 
this is what that, that crossing looks like. Who were you with as you crossed the gap? Um, well, I was with a photojournalist, um, Carlos Villalon, um, and a, a group of uh, almost 600 uh, migrants. And this is just in, in, in one group on one, uh, p- one path. There's two main paths that people are using at this moment to cross the jungle. Um, so probably 95% of that group were Venezuelan. Uh, But people from all around the world, uh, from uh, Nigeria, from Guinea, from Ghana, from Cameroon, uh, from Egypt, from Syria, from China, um, people from all around the world. But the vast majority were were Venezuelan and a significant number, I would say probably at least two thirds were families with young children. Why are we seeing more people crossing the Darien Gap? It's sort of a perfect perfect storm, not to to rely on the cliche, but actually of of that of that group, the vast majority of whom were, were Venezuelan, um, I would say maybe only a handful had come directly from Venezuela. So what we're actually seeing is um, Venezuelans making this journey who have been displaced multiple times already. Often Venezuelans who who left Venezuela, you know, uh, some years ago, who were displaced and went to Colombia, the vast majority are in Colombia, but also Ecuador and Peru. And so as those economies were really devastated, I mean, South America was um, disproportionate, had disproportionate negative impact um, from COVID-19 economically, but also in terms of the number of deaths as a region. So really, as those economies have collapsed, um, and, and insecurity in an economic sense, but also physical insecurity has really grown for these Venezuelan refugees. They're on the move again, and, and they're moving north. Also, part of, part of the reason is because the U.S. put a lot of pressure on Mexico to change its visa policy for Venezuelans. Um, so as soon as you see some of these visa policies change under U.S. pressure for these countries along the route, then you see those nationalities, in this case Venezuelans, uh, a pretty direct uh, relationship between that change and then the number of people that you see passing through the Darien Gap, because that increasingly becomes one of the only ways to get north and, and to gain access to, to asylum, which can only be claimed at the U.S.-Mexico border. So those are a few reasons. You learned about the death of a young father who was crossing the Darien Gap at the same time as you, and he was with his wife and toddler. What happened? So he was a 23-year-old uh, Venezuelan man, sort of a very young man uh, and a very fit man. Um, you know, we were in a group of 600 people, so you, you, you don't meet everyone and people sort of get spread out. So I hadn't, I hadn't met him. Um, I hadn't spoken with him. But um, I've spoken with his family since and the people who were with him, and we, and we heard about him. Um, and he, yes, he was with his wife and his three-year-old toddler, and he was diabetic, un- unfortunately. Um, and to me, that just truly underscores how this, this sort of U.S. bipartisan policy that the U.S. is also sort of trying to export to, to other countries throughout the region of prevention through deterrence. I mean, if you are a man who is diabetic, a very young man, and you know that there's a good chance that you might die in making this crossing because you don't have access to insulin, um, but you cross anyway, um, even with your wife and your three-year-old child, I mean, to me that just underscores um, how prevention through deterrence is, is really um, sort of a, a, a fallacy. Um, and he, he passed away very early in the morning, around the third day. It took us five, five days to cross. Um, and they had to bury him in the mud at the riverside and continue, uh, his wife and his child and the rest of the group that was with him. And, and I know that they, because they had asked us as well, they were sort of desperately looking for insulin, which of course no one had in, in the middle of the jungle. And actually a, a former Chinese Buddhist monk who is an engineer and a Christian uh, pastor, a barber from Venezuela, 
they're the two who buried him together, which is also just a, to give you a brief sense of, of how sort of global, but also just the, the sort of best and worst of, of humanity is, is seen on, the, on this really desperate journey. So the trip through the Darien Gap is at roughly a week of a much longer journey migrants take to the U.S.-Mexico border. Briefly, Molly, what comes after for migrants passing through? And that's potentially one of the the really most heartbreaking parts. I mean, they're they are desperate and exhausted before they get to the jungle. They survive the jungle, and, and then they have to continue. Um, so they'll cross into Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico to the U.S. Mexico border. So half a dozen countries after that, where they face corrupt officials, um, any other number robbery, etc. Um, and only to not know then what might happen when they reach the U.S.-Mexico border, whether they'll be allowed to stay and, and pursue their asylum claims. This migration has had a lot of side effects. Let's bring another voice to the conversation to talk about that now. Rachel Schmidtke is a senior advocate for Latin America at Refugees International. She's with me in studio in D.C. Uh, Rachel, you visited the border communities on either side of the Darien Gap earlier this year. Describe what's happening in those places now that so many more migrants are passing through them. Yes, so I visited the towns of Necocli and Capurgana in Colombia back in April, and it's a really interesting um, phenomenon that's happening because these communities traditionally have not been um, big receptors or, or, or transit areas for migrants. But what we're seeing now is that, um, starting with sort of the Haitians um, last year, is that a lot of the communities now are um, sort of prepped for the amount of people coming in. So you'll see, I'm sure Molly saw this on her journey as well, but people selling boots, um, life vests, things like that to try to, um, you know, provide goods for the people that are about to cross the gap. Um, But I think the challenging thing that we saw was that although the communities have become more receptive of people coming through, the humanitarian support is still really lacking. I think particularly what we saw that was shocking was um, shelter capacity is virtually non-existent on the Colombian side and in the Panamanian side, it's pretty limited. And so you have a lot of people, children, particularly women who are sleeping on the streets um, in very sort of precarious, vulnerable situations without um, real support to turn to in these communities. And so I think uh, particularly for Venezuelans who come with sometimes some of the least resources, they can't afford to um, pay for a hotel, for example, or things like that. So I think just seeing the the desperation and the difficulty um, prior to making the trek and then the lack of support as well. What has the increase in migrants meant for the economies of the towns on either side of the Darien Gap? Um, I think that it has been a mixed bag. So if you speak with the municipalities, for example, I mean, I think that they are... um, concerned about the impact that um, this migration has on tourism, um, which maybe leads them to be less um, willing to provide services to migrants in the area. But I think at the same time, um, community, I think there's a lot of solidarity, uh, particularly on the Colombian side. And so you you do see people who are um, willing to, you know, they take a, a, a profit, let's say, but they will allow Venezuelans to transfer money into their local bank accounts and give money because there's no ATMs in the area, for example. So I think there is... Um, some profit to be made, but also some solidarity within the communities as well. A crossing the Darien Gap requires wading through rivers. You form a human chain to get across safely, linking arms. Molly, tell us what happened when you were crossing that way and a woman froze. She, she wasn't able to move forward. Yeah, that, that to me was one of the most powerful moments of, or just realization um, of uh, how if you're in a certain extremity, Physical, if you're at pushed to physical extremes, 
how that manifests itself in, in sort of an emotional or psychological sense. Yeah, there was a mother who was crossing who sort of broke from the chain, um, which really puts her at risk and the rest of the people at risk um, of being sort of taken away uh, with the current. And um, she was directly in, in front of me, broke from the chain and sort of everyone's yelling at her to sort of get back in, in line before she's carried away. And she sort of just just threw her, her, her young boy sort of at someone else and was just frozen. She couldn't, she couldn't even, it was as if she couldn't even hear what was going on around her. And, and that's just sort of a, a, a really brief snapshot of just the sort of extreme desperate, extremely desperate place that, that people get into, the place that they get into um, when they're making this journey. Who has control over the Darien Gap? Rachel, what's your understanding? There's a few different actors who have control. So on the Colombian side, um, the people who are kind of managing the routes through the gap are sort of two actors. Um, One is the paramilitary organization called the Clan del Golfo. So they have a pretty well-oiled machine because they... um, traffic drugs through this area. And they also work, there are um, indigenous, Afro-Indigenous communities that have jurisdiction over the lands of the gap. And so they also can control the routes of who goes through the gap on the Colombian side. On the Panamanian side, um, it's different people, some indigenous groups, as well as um, other armed groups as well. Um, So it is, unfortunately, when people decide to go through the gap, um, they're putting their lives essentially in the hands of non-state actors who can do whatever they would like to them because um, as Molly mentioned, there's very little, um, you know, government presence in this area or NGO presence once the people are in the gap. So, We got this tweet from PSR Miami who says, I'm glad to have made it safely. So far, I haven't heard you mention the nighttime purge atmosphere where local gangs rape and kill migrants in the dark. Others hear screams, but intervening might mean getting hurt yourself. Molly, is this something you you heard about or were exposed to while you were crossing? It was not something that I was exposed to while crossing. It is something that I expected um, because I had heard about it. I mean, there was a point, uh, obviously, I mean, there's a point at which uh, last year, I think MSF was was estimating that, you know, as, as high as between 80 and 90 percent of women who were crossing the gap um, were being assaulted. Um, at the time that we crossed, which was just a few weeks ago, um, there was sort of a brief system of intense organization to the extent to which the very groups um, that were just being described, um, they actually had a, a sort of engaged in their own system of security um, for the migrants who were crossing. Now, you know, obviously, these are not necessarily, um, uh, they're not necessarily doing it for, for humanitarian reasons. I mean, they're doing it to protect their clients or they're doing it to, to protect their sort of human product is how they would see it. Um, But at the time that we crossed, um, as far as I understand it, that didn't happen to anyone. No one was attacked um, in in the group that we crossed with. But it certainly happens, has happened before. It's happened since. It's part of what makes this crossing just so dangerous. Um, It's also part of the reason why people who decide to continue walking through the night um, that's when many of these attacks might occur, but they will, they will also attack, they'll also happen during the day. A lot of drugs are also moved at nighttime on the same routes that migrants might move on during the day. So it's an, an incredibly unfortunate, um, you know, deadly swirl of factors and, and non-state actors that, that combine to make this an incredibly dangerous journey. Rachel, what have you heard? 
Uh, the same thing that Molly has mentioned of the sexual violence. And I think it speaks to the demographics of the people crossing through the gap that you have an increase in women and children, for example. And when I was in Nikokli, I had the opportunity to speak with um, a young girl. She was 13, an accompanied child. And there really wasn't any kind of uh, mechanism for identification of these kinds of children. And so, you know, she was a very beautiful young girl and she was extremely fearful of going through the gap because she said, I know that there is um, really high levels of sexual violence and I might be targeted, but she felt she didn't have any other option. So she was trying to basically raise enough money to go through a clandestine route to get around the gap and rather than going through because of what she'd heard of the dangers. But I think there's many women and children specifically, I mean, not limited to, of course, men also experience sexual violence, but I think um, given the heightened vulnerability of these people, this type of um, sad things can occur. Mm. When I when I hear you say she's she was 13, mm-hmm. um, having spent some time with my 13-year-old goddaughter um, over the weekend. That's just, it's just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. How, how was she trying to make money and... How did she end up there? Did you did you hear her story? I did. So she had left directly from Venezuela um, because she had been threatened by some local gangs in her community. Um, and so she traveled actually with her 17-year-old boyfriend. Um, and so I encountered her, um, which a lot of Venezuelans do in Nicocli, which is um, doing kind of odd jobs, picking up recycling, um, cleaning the beach, and things like that, just to earn a little bit of money to pay um, the, for the boat fee and the smuggler fee. But unfortunately, we also heard reports from a few other um, Venezuelans that were traveling in her group that um, her boyfriend had been trying to um, exploit her and have her uh, engage in, in commercial sex, essentially, so that they could get enough money to pay for the smuggler. So I think um, it just sort of, again, speaks to the kind of different um, risks that especially um, children and women face in this area where she leaves because she's at risk for being a youth in her um, home country. And then she's also placed into a vulnerable situation while on the move, not only from the paramilitary organizations or non actors, but also from um, people within her group, which not to say that that's always the norm, but it just, I think, speaks to her heightened vulnerability. We got this tweet from KJ who asks, where do the people making this journey get reliable information to guide their trip? Molly, who is leading people through the gap? What do we know about them? Well, I mean, reliable information, and that that's a really difficult um, part of this journey, um, that, that sort of uncertainty and lack of access to reliable information and who you can trust and what you can trust. I mean, that is a huge part of the sort of psychological and emotional toll of this journey. Um, you know, there are, uh, it is a, it's extremely organized um, to a sort of shocking degree. Um, you have a, a sort of fee that you would pay in, in Ecocli, um, or other uh, towns before you sort of cross the Gulf of Arabe and then and then you make the journey, uh, and that it's sort of a one one time fee. It would include the the boat and it would include the crossing and it would include the smuggler fee. Um, so you know there it's a little difficult to say sort of the command and control um, the the control of the route and the smuggling certainly seems to be held by the paramilitary slash cartel and they're sort of the same thing now the Clan del Golfo. Uh, and the smugglers seem to be sort of independent contractors, I would say, is sort of how I would describe that that relationship. But they're not just getting, the, the migrants themselves are, and the asylum seekers are not just getting information from the smugglers, which can be, you know, the smugglers will tell them sort of what they want to hear. They'll often tell them the journey is only going to take them two or three days so that they're more likely to take it. But then they don't bring enough food. They may not bring enough water. They may not have the right shoes on, which it sounds um, 
simple but is remarkably important, but they're also getting information from each other. They're getting information from TikTok videos. They're getting information from these really large WhatsApp groups that are you know, often specific to a nationality, people who are ahead in the journey, people who have already made it, who are passing information back. Um, so it's, it's really information from a, from a number of sources, and I think they tend to trust each other the most, but also, you know, each experience is different and it changes every day. I mean, from one day to the next, you have the U.S. now saying that essentially Venezuelans can't get access to asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. So the policies are also constantly changing as well. And they're trying to keep up on the latest. We're discussing the treacherous journey through the Darien Gap and the people who attempt it. We'll get more into the policy side of this discussion in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation by adding a new voice. Andrew Seeley is the president of the Migration Policy Institute. That's a nonpartisan immigration policy think tank. He's joining us from Washington, D.C. Andrew, welcome. Uh, Good to be with you. So, Andrew, you've studied global migration for years. What can we learn about global migration by looking at the Darien Gap specifically? You know, I, I think is that people will go to great extents to improve their lives or to get away from danger. Um, and even the most inhospitable places in the world and the biggest barriers that can be thrown up are, are often not deterrence to people that are incredibly determined, you know, either to get to safety or to, or to you know, look for a better life for their family. Rachel, your thoughts? Uh, I completely agree with Andrew. I mean, I think it speaks to um, the desperation that many people feel um, to be willing to basically cross an extremely dangerous um, route to get to a place where they can find stability and opportunity. And I think if we look at the uh, dynamics of what's happening with Venezuelans in the region, I mean, Molly alluded to this earlier, is that 4.3 million of the displaced Venezuelans in the region now do not have access to food, shelter, and a reliable job. And so I think um, the difficulties that many people are facing, not only in Venezuela, but throughout the region, um, increases their desperation and I think forces them to go through dangerous routes to be able to find somewhere where they can land, get a job, you know, be able to access health care and education for their children. So, yes. Mm. Molly, you alluded to this earlier. Social media is, is full of videos of people crossing the Darien Gap. What role does technology play for those making this journey? I mean, you can't, um, it, it's difficult to overstate uh, how significant technology is um, in, in people making this journey. I mean, every person, almost every person that is crossing will, will have a smartphone, um, not necessarily because they have incredible means, but because they recognize that it's an absolutely necessary tool uh, in order for them to be able to make this journey. Um, Because they're getting information from other migrants who've passed ahead or behind them, because they're looking for trusted names of an agent, they'll refer to a smuggler as an agent or a guide because as far as they're concerned, they're providing a service that they need to get from point A to point B and some some measure of security. They're watching the TikTok videos. uh, They're in secret Facebook groups that are specific to nationality. I mean, there are people who are on Google Maps in the Darien, you know, trying to make sure that the path that they're taking is 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 the right one. I mean, technology is incredibly significant uh, in making this journey. I, I spoke to a man who I've been following since Brazil, actually, who's from Afghanistan, um, and they were on a bus traveling through northern Mexico, and um, and the bus was stopped, and someone tried to take his phone, and he he literally had a gun to his head. I wouldn't give up his phone because he said, you know, you might as well, if you take my phone, you might as well kill me because that's the only way 
that I know that I can get to safety. And safety to them means the United States. I want to stress that point. Um, it, as long as there's one video of one person making it, they will tell themselves that they will be that person and then the only place that they can be safe and that they can have a better life for themselves and their children. It's really this unshakable faith uh, in the American dream. Well, earlier this month, the Biden administration announced a new humanitarian program that will allow 24,000 Venezuelans to enter the country legally. Former U.S. Ambassador to Venezuela, Patrick Ruddy, spoke to the takeaway this week, and he said it likely won't slow the flow of migrants through the Darien Gap. My sense is that the people who will come via that uh, channel are not the same people who are, are trying to make the the, uh, the crossing by land, which would include um, going through the very hazardous uh, Darien Gap in Panama and then traversing all of Mexico. So it's it's, it's quite problematical. I think the, the long-term solution has to be an improvement in the conditions on the ground in Venezuela. Rachel, when he says these are likely different groups of people who will be able to access, you know, these different routes into the country. What does he mean? So this program, which I wouldn't actually classify as a humanitarian program, I think is geared more towards Venezuelans who have um, means. So basically, the program stipulates that you need to have an economic sponsor in the United States, as well as a valid passport. Most of the Venezuelans who are going through the Darien Gap at this point in time, and, and really most of them that are on the move, do not have access to that. It's very difficult to get a passport. So most people either have expired documents or no documents at all. And so it's really geared towards the few who have that kind of economic sponsor or relationship with someone in the United States and also have these documents. So the most vulnerable are essentially getting left out in this program. And what will happen is, is that once they reach the U.S.-Mexico border, they'll be subject to Title 42 and essentially expulsed back into Mexico, which leaves them in a situation of being in limbo, essentially. Andrew, remind us, what are the conditions in Venezuela right now? I mean, the conditions in Venezuela have been deteriorating for some time, but but starting in 2015-2016, um, Venezuela both entered a, a deep political conflict where the government was desperate to stay in power and started persecuting people that they thought were in the opposition. Um, often people were in the opposition, but sometimes it was it was people who they simply suspected of not being on their side. And the economy just went into a kind of collapse that we, we really haven't seen other places in the world. I mean, maybe Zimbabwe uh, a couple decades ago. But I mean, there was million percent inflation one year. There's a, a World Bank study that says that that people on average lost about 20 pounds over a five year period. I mean, this was Venezuela was one of the most prosperous countries in Latin America, one of the most educated. Um, it was a place that attracted migrants from other countries. And all of a sudden, it became the basket case. Uh, certainly of South America. And and we saw people leaving in huge numbers because, you know, they either they were being persecuted directly, they had lost a job because they were seen as an opposition figure or someone had knocked on their door to threaten them, um, or because they simply, you know, they couldn't get medical attention for their kids or they simply didn't have enough food. And, I mean, it is one of those rare cases in the world of a country going from being fairly stable, largely middle class, to, to a complete collapse. And, and now it's stabilized a bit, but it's stabilized at a, at a very low level. I mean, it's not, it's not collapsing in the way it was five years ago, but it, but it is, you know, it is at a very low level and is one of the poorest countries in, in the region right now after having been one of the wealthiest. And, and this is, I mean, we saw 7 million people leave after 2015. I mean, this is a vast number. It's about 20% of the population. 
Um, and almost all of them, and this is interesting, very few came to the United States or Europe. A few did. Mm. Most of them came to other countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. And so there are, it's the biggest refugee crisis we know very little about in the United States. I mean, we saw two and a half million people move to Colombia, a million, over a million moved to Peru, a half million to Ecuador and Chile. I mean, these are just every country in Latin America and the Caribbean has a Venezuelan community, and some of them are quite large today. This now is a secondary movement. It's new people coming from Venezuela and then people who moved elsewhere now moving to the United States. But we're now seeing what the rest of the region saw five years ago um, in, in the mass movement of Venezuelans trying to get out of their country. What steps is the U.S. taking to improve conditions on the ground in Venezuela, as the ambassador suggested, Rachel? Um, I mean, I think that there's always uh, conversations between the United States and um partners in the region on this topic. It's not something that I cover extensively, but I think we've been vocal about our support in the past for the opposition leader, Juan Guaido, for example. I know that there's been sanctions. Um, so I think, unfortunately, the, the bigger issue is what is the U.S. doing um, for countries in the region that are receiving such high levels of Venezuelans, like Andrew mentioned, 2.5 million in Colombia. And I think the good thing is the U.S. is the largest donor for the Venezuelan response. But if we look at the disparities between other large displacement crises like Ukraine, like Syria, the funding for the Venezuela response is pretty abysmal. And so I think um, while the U.S. is a leader in that respect, um, a lot more needs to be done, not only from the United States, but other countries around the world. We got this email from Mimi who says, Venezuela is a beautiful country, resources rich. Why not stay to defend it? Rachel, your thoughts? I mean, I think it's really difficult to say stay and defend it and also um, starve or, you know, be subject to massive human rights violations or jailed for political um, being a political dissident. I think conditions in Venezuela are very, very terrible for many people. I think, you know, so I, I think it's difficult to say stay and fight. When and, and there has been a significant number of people who have protested in the past who have really been vocal about um, wanting to change things in Venezuela. But the level of desperation is very high. And so I think that speaks sort of to the misunderstanding of, of what really is going on in Venezuela, I think, around the world, of, of what it looks like to live under an authoritarian regime where you have really no um, opinion, your opinions aren't valid and you are at risk if you um, stay and fight. Well, the increase in migrants crossing through the Darien Gap, as we've said, is fueled largely by the Venezuelan refugee crisis. Since 2015, you know, one in four Venezuelans were saying they've left home. And that's also part of why so many migrants are, are showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border. U.S. Customs and Border Protection reported a, rec a record 2.3 million apprehensions last year. Molly, what recent steps has the Biden administration taken to try to stem the flow of Venezuelan migrants to the U.S.? Well, I mean, a lot of it looks like enforcement. I mean, what everyone is sort of underscoring and, and even, uh, you know, in, in the most recent, we, we just had the fiscal year close. And so we have sort of a full year of of data on apprehensions at the border. And, and the Department of Homeland Security says, driven largely by an increased number of asylum seekers fleeing authoritarian regimes in Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And actually, the U.S. has recognized the opposition leader. No one is pretending as if elections are legitimate in Venezuela, and you've seen the sort of collapse of that country. But the, Uni the United States has also put sanctions on Venezuela that has already, that has also hurt people. So even as they're acknowledging Venezuelans as asylum seekers, they've recently taken steps to explicitly bar Venezuelans from seeking asylum in the United States by expanding this policy known as Title 42. It actually refers to a statute 
uh, but it, it, um, that name has become synonymous with this policy, which is supposed to be for the purpose of public health uh, and is now being used to explicitly bar Venezuelans, the same people that they're acknowledging as asylum seekers, fleeing an authoritarian regime that they explicitly oppose um, and is preventing them from accessing asylum. So they're being, they're now as of the middle of October, just a few weeks ago, um, Venezuelans are now being sent back to Mexico. And then from Mexico, I'd like to stress that some Venezuelans are um, being put on flights back to Venezuela mm. um, and these quote-unquote voluntary, voluntary returns. So largely the U.S. response has been, in terms of Venezuela, has been directed largely at preventing them from accessing asylum, which is a right under U.S. law. And the grounds for asylum are race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, and political opinion. So at the same time as the U.S. claims to support the Venezuelan people uh, in their opposition to um, an authoritarian regime and explicitly calls them asylum seekers, they're denying them access to asylum by using this policy that really is unprecedented and was never intended to be used in this way to prevent them from accessing asylum, which is their right under U.S. law. I want to get to a couple of more questions from our audience. Dogwood tweeted, how are immigrants from countries besides those in South America getting to the Darien Gap? Really quickly, Molly, what can you tell us? It's quite incredible, but uh, two, really quickly, Brazil and Ecuador have some of the, the loosest visa policies in the world. So almost from anywhere in the world, you can get a visa, and then they essentially use, and they, they gather money, they borrow money in order to fly there. And then they essentially use the entire Western Hemisphere as a land bridge to the U.S.-Mexico border. So uh, including passing through most of South America to get to the Darien Gap and then sort of combining with the Venezuelans and others from South America to arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border because it's one of the few remaining legal avenues for immigration to the United States. I'd love to hear from Rachel and, and Andrew what you'd like to see from the U.S. in terms of policy to address this wave of migration. Andrew, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I think, you know, the the other side of this, and, and, you know, this is a complicated issue, is the U.S. was actually until two weeks ago allowing almost all Venezuelans, if they got to the border, to stay in the United States. And so about 250,000 Venezuelans got to the U.S.-Mexico border in the last two years, most of them in the last year. And um, basically once they got there would be processed and then allowed to stay in the U.S. with a notice to appear at some point in in an ICE office, an Immigration Customs Enforcement office, somewhere in the U.S. Um, And that was specifically so they could have their asylum claim assessed, correct? Right. If they if they chose to make an asylum claim, uh, many do. Others, you know, for obvious reasons, don't necessarily want to go near a government office and, you know, try and get a job. This is a time of, of you know, tight labor markets in the U.S., so there's actually a lot of, of jobs available. People know this, and so people are starting their lives over. Um, this is, you know, on one hand, a great thing, and on the other hand, it's also part of why people are moving. I mean, as Molly said, things were really bad during the COVID pandemic for lots of Venezuelans who'd moved to other countries, and things continue to be bad in Venezuela for people who stayed. And suddenly they had an opportunity to get to the U.S., almost certainty if they could make it to the border of being able to stay um, and start their lives over, and a, a really active job market that was looking for people to come. Right? So quickly, Where they really had an, we've got just about 30 yeah. seconds left. So what would you like to see from the U.S. in terms of policy? I think you have to figure out how we create greater legal pathways for the truly vulnerable people to come. Um, and we haven't done that. The 24,000 is a good start, but we need to get a, a much larger legal pathway that gives people an opportunity to come. Rachel, your thoughts? 
Um, I think there's a couple things I'd like to see. First of all, the U.S. has incredible sway within the region. Um, and so we see a lot of externalization policies from the United States government. Um, when I was in Guatemala, I saw Venezuelans getting pushed back over the border to Honduras, for example. So I think the influence of uh, visa regimes is uh, making it very difficult for people. And I think we also need to be resettling more Venezuelans from third countries in the region. We have this tool of refugee resettlement. We should be using it. We'll have to leave it there. That's Rachel Schmidtke. She's the Senior Advocate for Latin America at Refugees International. Also with us today, Andrew Seeley, President of the Migration Policy Institute, and Molly O'Toole. She's the Immigration and Security Reporter for the Los Angeles Times. She's currently working on a book with Penguin Random House about asylum seekers' journey to the U.S. Thanks to you all. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at The1A Show. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.